This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 469, and you're listening to The Daniel Glass Show, only on Drummer's Resource. This is it, right here. Uh-huh. Then you gotta add some of the little tricks. Ah, ah, you'll be swinging. Uh-huh. Right. It's The Daniel Glass Show on Drummer's Resource, offering a deeper look into Daniel's unique take on music, drumming, and life. Philosophy, motivation, musical deconstructions, and conversations with influential voices in the music industry. Hey everybody, Daniel here. I want to welcome you back to another episode of the Daniel Glass Show, only here on Drummer's Resource. And uh, today we're going to just jump right in. Uh, I'm doing an interview with uh, a very good friend of mine here in New York City. Um, maybe someone whose name is not super familiar to you all as a drummer per se, but he is a well-known and well-beloved figure in the drumming industry, the education industry. His name is Anthony Citroniti. He is the uh, director of the Drummers Collective, which is really part of a larger school that includes a bass collective, a guitar collective, a keyboard collective, a vocal collective. And therefore, the school is collectively known as The Collective now. But it started out as a school for drummers called The Drummers Collective, and a lot of people still refer to it um, in that in that light. So he's the executive director there. I should also mention, by the way, that we do the Daniel Glass Jazz Intensive. We host that event at... Um, at the Drummers Collective, and uh, it's been our home for uh, coming up on our fourth year. This June of 2019 is year four. We still have a few slots available for that, by the way, but it is um, almost sold out at this point. Um, so uh, if you're interested, uh, go to my page, go to the uh, clinics slash intensives tab, and you can learn all about the 2019 Jazz Daniel Glass New York Jazz Intensive um, June seven through 11, sorry, seven through 10 at the drummers collective. So Anthony is not only, uh, the director of the school, he's, he's a real New York figure. And, uh, I sort of, I moved to New York about nine years ago and, um, I've just really fallen in love with this place. It's a, you know, I've talked a, a bit about it on this podcast. It's a tough place to be, but it's also one of the most beautiful places in the world. It's full of amazing energy and creativity, and there's so much music uh, of all kinds here. And, um, you know, I started doing clinics at the collective a, a few years actually before I even moved to New York. So I would come out and I would organize a clinic there and, uh, got to know Anthony and Tony Magellino, who's the, um, one of the other directors there. And, uh, a lot of the faculty that teach there, uh, great, great players, Jason Gianni, uh, great metal drummer, um, Peter Retzlaff, uh, Kim Plainfield, a bunch of these folks that were on staff. So the collective's kind of been a home for me. It's been a very welcoming place, very family environment, oriented environment. Um, so Anthony, in our interview, is going to talk about the history of this incredible school, um, how it ties into a lot of the greatest drum videos that, uh, that we've all been fans of over the years, um, and what a magical environment that it is. Anthony also, uh, he's just a really New York figure. And so we're going to talk about his growing up and coming down to the city and some of the experiences he had um, being involved with, with the school. Anthony also has created a really fantastic app, which is called Meat Hook, M-E-E-T-H-O-O-K, Meat Hook. Um, and it's something that I think could really revolutionize 
uh, the world of online education in a lot of ways. So we're going to talk about that. And we're going to talk a little bit about about his career because he's had some fantastic moments in his career, including a brief stint with the band Boston, of all things, um, which I'm a huge Boston fan going back to the 70s. I actually saw Boston on their Don't Look Back tour in 1979. It was my first arena, no, I'm sorry, my first stadium show. Um, and uh, so I was eager to find out about that, and there'll be a small clip of him performing with the band that I'll include in the show notes. So um, put your New York hats on and... Uh, you know, get a slice of pizza <laughs> and get ready for a really uh, fun and interesting and uh, jovial interview with my good friend, Anthony Citrinitti. I have on the line with me, none other than the one and only Anthony Citrinitti from, uh, from the collective and Meat Hook and elsewhere. And uh, Anthony, welcome to the Daniel Glass Show. Daniel, it's such a pleasure to be talking with you, man. Thanks for having me. Hey, man. Uh, you know, it's uh, you and I have been friends for a long time now. You guys have been an integral part of my New York experience. And uh, so I figured it was high time. And, and you have such an interesting story that maybe people know one facet of your story or another, but they don't necessarily know the whole the whole package. And I think it's a really fascinating, interesting story. Um, so, you know... Uh, yeah, I'm stoked to have you. Thanks, man. Yeah. So, um, you know, let's maybe talk just a little bit about your upbringing. Um, you're not a native New Yorker in terms of New York City, but you are a native New Yorker in terms of New York State, right? Yes. Yeah, I grew up in upstate New York, Utica, New York. Um, it's a small town between Syracuse and Albany, basically. And, uh, you know, tons of great musicians out there. My dad's a booking agent and has been in the entertainment business since, I mean, since before I was born. Um, he actually celebrated his 50th year uh, running his own business, which I was blown away when I when I heard that. You know, it, it makes sense, but uh, it was it was a surprise to to actually realize that, you know, he had passed the 50 threshold. It was, uh, so we celebrated over the holidays. It's amazing. Um, yeah, he, uh, he was, he's always been a big inspiration to me. He brought me to, you know, gigs, you know, he'd have to go pay the bands. So he would bring me to the gigs and I'd get to watch all these bands when I was real young. And I always just sort of stood behind the drummer. I got lucky enough. What a surprise. Uh, that, yeah, <laughs> I was great. lucky enough to to have my dad bring me backstage, and that's just always what I did. I just watched the drummer bands like the Association uh, pops into my head. I mean, so many of the of the ba- like they they don't exist anymore, you know, but they they were around back in the day, and uh, I just remember having the opportunity to watch them very closely, and. Uh, and, uh, you know, meet meet the uh, musicians afterwards. My dad would always introduce me. Of course, I was this little, tiny little kid that, you know, um, they were just, you know, being nice to me. But I it, I was soaking it all in, you know what I mean, uh, even at a really young age. So that's, um, you know, that's sort of where it all started for me. And I started taking drum lessons at 10 because my dad noticed, obviously, that, uh, that I was really into it. And... Uh, he got me lessons. I took him in school, and then he found a drummer outside of uh, school that could help, you know, start getting me uh, playing on the kit. 
his name was Kelly Yako. He's uh, he's still around and we're still friends. Cool. Um, really great teacher. Uh, Rick Compton was uh, the teacher I had in school. And yeah, I mean, you know, uh, he took my, you know, I had a very supportive dad. He took me to Modern Drummer Festival every year. Uh, we took the drive and, you know, had some, uh, you know, father-son bonding time. It was really amazing. I'll, I'll never forget uh, his favorite was uh, was Roy, when we saw Roy Haynes, you know, like I didn't, I was so young. I didn't know who Roy Haynes was, but uh, he <laughs> right. stole the show. Yeah. So I was, a, I was a. I don't. I was probably like twelve or thirteen years old, and all of a sudden, you know, going to uh, to that festival, I was exposed to so many drummers that I didn't know about. Um, and uh, you know, he he stole the show that year, whatever year that was, um, and uh, you know, really made an impression on my dad. And you know, and uh, you know, it's just, it's just been amazing. Uh, it's between my dad uh, with the inspiration and, uh, you know, from the business part of things, as yeah. well as my grandfather from the business part, learned a lot from both of them. Uh, and what, my what, uncle was, what business was your grandfather in? Also music related? Uh, my grandfather owned his own business throughout the years. He was a photographer. Uh, he had a photography studio and, uh, um, and, you know, Honestly, up until his uh, late 80s, early 90s, I remember before I even had an email, my grandfather had an email. It was amazing. Like wow. My grandfather was so into technology. He was so on the cutting edge. He had a computer before any of us. Uh, he was, uh, you know, starting, you know, uh, uh, you know, businesses that uh, that were happening in the early stages of the Internet. And uh, I'll, I'll never forget I was uh, – you know, around 14, 15 years old. And, um, you know, he was really getting into it. And, you know, I, I mean, I didn't hear, I didn't hear that the, the first, the tones of the first modem until I was in New York city and I was like 18 or 19 years old, but my grandfather was totally getting into it when I was like 15, 16. So, wow. um, yeah, that's, so that's inspirational way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, my whole family has uh, really been, you know, they've worked for themselves. So I, yeah. I sort of, it's it's ingrained in me, you know, to to sort of take charge and, you know, make make some something for myself. Yeah. Now we, well, definitely you've, you've brought the entrepreneurial spirit forward in a lot of other areas of your life. But before we jump into that too heavily, I want to, wanted to just say uh, or, or ask you what, you know, you, you ended up coming uh, to... New York City and studying at the Drummers Collective, and that was your first involvement. What what prompted you to decide to to move to New York City, and how did that experience go? When was that? Um, so I moved to New York City in 1994. I have to give my buddy Joe Basie props. He uh, he's just a friend of mine. We you know we grew up learning uh, taking lessons from this guy Kaliako in upstate New York, and. Uh, I remember I was like, you know, I'm leaving Utica. I got to get out of here. I got to go, uh, you know, go somewhere and, you know, sort of network and, and get, a, get in a band. And like, it was all I wanted to do. I was looking at Berkeley. I was looking back then at uh, a school in California. It wasn't MI, uh, Grove School of Music. That's, I was looking at. <laughs> that's where I went. That was my, that's I went there amazing. in 91. Yeah. But it was, that's amazing. By, by 94, it was. I think on its way out, it was maybe even done by then. But yeah, yeah, yeah it was I a great school. Their full page ads and, and modern drummer, and uh, 
you know, like many drummers, uh, you know, everything I knew what came from that magazine, yeah. basically. Yeah. Um, so I was up in the air. I, you know, their full page ads really got me going. Um, I wanted to go to Grove. And then uh, some guys were, you know, everybody was trying to sort of steer me in different directions and stuff. And I, and I'm, I remember uh, my buddy Joe Basie going, you know, what, why don't you go to the collective, the drummers collective? I always see their ads. They're right in New York City. It's so close. Why don't you just go there? And I was like, you know, that's a great idea. I don't know. Let me look more into it. So then, you know, um, lucky me, I had, you know, supportive parents. They both drove me to the city. They We used to go to the city when I was younger anyways. Like once a year we'd go and they'd take me to the San Gennaro Festival because they always loved to go. So we'd go to the Which Cubs is the, the, the Italian, uh, Italian kind of community uh, coming yeah. together. In Little festival. Italy, yeah. every August. And, uh, it was, you know, quite an experience going there every year, but that's kind of what I, that was my introduction to New York. So I thought New York, you know, as a, as a young kid, I was like, man, there's a lot of Italians out here in New York. <laughs> yes, and there are. love to eat. Yeah. And this, uh, it's obviously perfect <laughs> for me, you know? Right. Um, so my buddy tells me about Drummer's Collective and, and, uh, I knew about it because of the ads in Modern Drummer, but I was like, you know, I never had really, I don't know why, but I never thought about going there. And so I got my parents to drive me out. I went to take a tour around the collective and see, you know, check out the facilities and talk to a few teachers. Um, I, I remember the day I went there, Adam Nussbaum was giving a master class in one of the larger studios. And I remember sitting in the back of the room for like 15, 20 minutes being blown away by the things he was bringing up. Like yeah. it was totally opening my mind already. And I was like, Oh man, I got to go here. This like the vibe <laughs> in this place. Yeah. You know, I'm an 18 year old. I, actually, by at that point I was 17. I hadn't even finished high school yet, but I knew right away walking into that place and sitting in the back of that room with Adam Nussbaum. I was like, man, I got to This is the place for me. I got, I just knew it was like, a, it felt like home already, you know, little did I know 24 <laughs> years later, you know, it's crazy. Yeah. And what, well, you know, maybe, I mean, first of all, when, when did the collective open? It opened in the 80s sometime, right? Mid 80s? Actually, 77. Wow. Is, is the, is the year that it was founded by a guy named Rick Kravitz that I never met. And I've always wanted to sort of find him to just, uh, talk to him about those early years because I, I've only, Everything I know about the early years is like hearsay, you know. Mm -hmm. um, I have spoken to a few people like Horace Arnold who who taught oh, yeah. there in the early years. Uh, Chet DeBow taught there in oh. the early seven uh, in the you know in the early years of the collective of the late seventies. And um, I never got to talk to Rick, but the the story goes that um, Rick owned it and uh, founded it and owned it in seventy seven. Had guys teaching there, like the few I mentioned, also uh, Frank Malabay. Yes. And, uh, and you know, it was M Michael Lauren, Fred Klatz was one of the first, one of the early students there. Um, trying to remember some other names. But, uh, oh, Horace, Ar I found this out recently. Horace Arnold actually taught Virgil Donati there, a young, very, very young Virgil Donati wow. there before he left, which I believe he left in 79, if I'm not mistaken. Horace. So think about that. Or Virgil. 77. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Horace taught Virgil and uh, Will Calhoun 
wow. in those three or four years that he that was he there was yeah. teaching in between 77 and like 1980 or yeah. 81. For or those that like don't that. know, Horace Arnold is a, a, a pretty legendary uh, New York jazz drummer. Is he still around or? He still is around. I've, I see him like uh, I just happened to bump into him in one of the New York hangs or whatever, like at least once a year, sometimes twice, you know? I remember like, you know, as a young uh, collector of records and, and getting into jazz and everything, uh, seeing his name. And if I'm not mistaken, his name has two E's on the end of it, right? It does. So, it does. I always thought he was named Horacey Arnold. For In fact, you just cleared it up for me because I've never met him and I, I'd never, you know, had the opportunity to, to, to know that much about him. So, it's just Horace. To be completely honest with you, I'm hoping that I'm correct with that because I... <laughs> I have called him Horace before, um, but I have heard other people call him different, and he never he never uh, corrected me. So uh, right. I assume I'm right, but I'm not 100 percent positive. Interesting, to be honest with you. Yeah. So you know, maybe you could tell us a little bit more. I mean, uh, so that people know about the history because the, the Drummers Collective is is a really important place in terms of uh, not only education, why it started, when it started. Uh, but also in terms of, you know, DCI and the whole world of drum videos and all of that stuff, which all came out of there originally. Um, but, but maybe just talk about like, why was it founded? And, you know, we all tend to think of these schools like MI and Berkeley, and there's a lot of other schools around like that. In 1977, that was not the case. I mean, this was like the new frontier in a way. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let me, let me first say that, uh, I, you know, when I moved to New York City, like I said, it was 94 and I studied there at, in 94 and I've been there basically ever since for the most part. Um, so everything I know prior to that is either stuff I've heard or just stuff that uh, has been discussed um, over the years. So I'll do my best to, uh, you know, like someone like Rob Wallace or Paul Siegel, uh, even John Castellano. Mm. Uh, who's my partner over there at the collective, those guys could probably give a little more in-depth um, information. But from what I, uh, from what I know, like I said, 77, it was uh, founded. And basically it was a very small group of professional drummers who liked sharing ideas. And so they would get together in this space and, uh, you know, share their ideas, jam it out. And uh, they started you know, bringing other members of, you know, whoever they were playing with would, would start coming around. So it wasn't just all drummers. There was actually some other, um, you know, different players there. And uh, they realized very quickly that, uh, that this was a great sort of energy that was uh, happening there. And they decided, you know, why don't we just have a place for, for us to, you know, give lessons and we'll sort of share this space and everybody can teach out of it and you know it, there was no formal classes or curriculum or anything at that point it was all about just let's share ideas um let's invite people in let's uh you know some people would just you know book our lessons with guys from uh, the way i've heard about it it kind of sounds like the the wild west a little bit you know where guys were just oh let, you know this room's open let's just run you know let's just jump in here they jump in there somebody would you know hand them some cash and then they'd leave it's completely different now but i believe that's where it started uh with some of those names that i mentioned and um you know uh 
from what I understand, Rick Kravitz, uh, maybe like four or five years in. Again, Rob Wallace is a great guy to, that could uh, probably give um, more detailed information. I know he's spoken about it on other podcasts in the past. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, Rick was looking to sort of get out of the business. I guess his family, from what I heard, his family owned restaurants or whatever in, in the Massachusetts area. And um, I guess he wanted to move on. And at the time, Rob and Paul were students at the at the Drummers Collective, and um, somehow, some way, they ended up acquiring the equipment and the name. And uh, they were soon faced with having to find a new home because at that time, the collective, the Drummers Collective, that it wasn't even called the Collective, even though people always referred to it as the Collective. Um, you know, it moved, they, 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 it was in on 42nd street, actually very close to times square. And, uh, and yeah, from what I understand, they had, they, they took over the equipment and the name and they were, they, they were quickly faced with having to find a new home and they somehow, uh, you know, were able to start renting the fourth floor at 541 sixth Avenue, which is where the collective, you know, resides now. And, uh, Yes. And that's the, they and they slowly starting started, you know, putting together, you know, getting these teachers who were always around. They started formulating, from what I understand, a bit of a curriculum, a bit of a program, and it never really officially launched, from what I understand, until John Castellano came into the picture, because that was his forte, and he really organized all the different players and teachers and. Um, what their specialty was and how they could sort of turn it into a quote unquote program for drummers coming in to be able to take them through a track of education that could spit them out at the end and have them having a good, you know, well-built foundation. So um, that I believe started in the late eighties. So it was sort of a free for all from what I understand <laughs> between 77 and, and like the late eighties. Um, and in that process, uh, to segue right into the DCI thing, again, yeah. this is all, this is all just what I've heard over the years. Yeah. I wasn't actually, well, that's uh, all right. Around, we, we won't hold you to every detail. I think <laughs> okay. it's just an interesting story. Yeah. So, um, I'm sure a lot of people that are listening to this remember the DCI instructional music videos that yes. started coming out in the eighties. They were the first, they were really the first ones, at least the first ones of real kind of quality and substance as i recall yeah so the idea was i guess that uh wow we're doing all this amazing stuff uh, under this uh, under one roof and you know so many people would love to be here but not everybody can be here so let's you know let's get one of these uh vhs recorders uh that that we just heard came out and let's start filming this stuff and see what happens and i think bernard purdy was one of the first people to do for for them to film Steve his, Gad uh, isn't there wasn't the Steve Gad Steve, yes. one of the first Steve ones Steve Gad was one of up the close first is as that well. up yes. up close yeah yeah so it kind of uh, it's kind of funny because uh, DCI was called was stood for Drummers Collective Incorporated which yes. was the, which is the corporate still the corporate name of the collective is the Drummers Collective Incorporated. So mm. they just took on that name and started selling Rob and Paul, you know, they started yeah. this DCI company and started selling these VHS tapes with little ads in the back of Modern Drummer. And uh, 
Then they brought John on, like I was saying, John Castellano, who ended up turning the school into more of an official place to come study uh, yeah. and to go through a program. And and I should I should also mention that uh, DCI eventually morphed into Hudson, and maybe people today are more familiar with Hudson Music and uh, all their DVDs. They filmed all the Modern Drummer Festivals and have done many of the greatest books and DVDs of the last 20 years. Um, yeah, man. You know, those are some legendary, uh, uh, you know, uh, pieces of work there. Uh, absolutely. I mean, absolutely. One, you know, honestly, the, the, as soon as I realized, I never, I'll, I'll never forget the day that I was at the collective studying, you know, somewhere in 94, 95, and realizing that right downstairs are the DCI offices. I was like, are you kidding me? All those videos that I, they're right downstairs. Right. Like, for me, it was like moving to New York City was like, this is amazing. I get to be around all these professionals and learn from the best. And then I found out that, you know, this big part of me coming up as a musician by being inspired by all these videos, like that office was right underneath. I was like blown away. I was like, this is this is totally the place I needed to go. I'm so happy. That's that I cool. Going there. Yeah. And so, you know, maybe, you know, a lot of people maybe have never been to New York City or, um, maybe they visited once and went to Times Square and, you know, they don't, it, it, there's, there's this unique atmosphere about New York. And I think one of the things I love about the collective is that it's just such a New York place in terms of what happens, the energy, the people that teach there, maybe, you know, you could give us sort of, you know, some sense of that, of the New York nature of it. Because I think, um, I know for me, it was very intimidating, um, when I first came to New York, New York's an intimidating place. But once you kind of dig into it, it's an amazing place. It, you know, it, it's it's an incredible place. So I, you know, talk a little bit about the New, the New York character of of the collective and why that's so special. Yeah, you know, when I first was heading there, I thought for sure it'd be like a major competition. You know, everybody would be trying to you know, one up the other person. And it so was not that it was so everybody was so inviting and so uh, open and, and sharing. Like it was for me, it was never intimidating. Yeah, in my mind, it was before I got here. But as soon as I got here, it became, you know, a lot of the, the students studying at the collective were from overseas. I think 70. I was in a class in 94 with 21 students and I was one of three Americans. Everyone wow. else was from other countries. And I think that was a big part of it too. When I walked into the school, the energy was amazing. Everybody's on the pad and working on stuff. People are watching DCI videos and uh, everybody was, you know, this whole reputation that New York city used to have. I don't know if it still has it, but, uh, but this whole, you know, vibe of like, you know, people, uh, being rude and and loud and you know yeah loud for sure rude not so much uh, at least <laughs> in my opinion you know yeah. um yeah it's just uh it was it was all, it was very inviting i mean i learned so much just from the students in the lobby you know everybody's working on everybody's coming from a different part of the world working on some different stuff and it was just I, I just I was like a sponge. I wanted to soak it all up, and and I, I loved every second of every day. I remember when I first moved. Uh, it was like two days before my program started. I was a huge fan of the Late Night with David Letterman because I uh, 
you know, I'd watch that every night leading up to moving there, you know, dreaming of being in the big city. And I remember the first day I got there, I threw all my stuff in, in the, I, I, you know, I lived in a hotel for the first uh, two months, basically. And I remember dropping my stuff off and just walking. I think yeah. I, it was in September, so it was a beautiful fall day, and I'm pretty sure I walked about uh, 150 blocks that day, just sort of soaking it all up. And uh, yeah, man, um, New York sometimes has a bad rap, but uh, or gets a bad rap, but it's totally, it, from my experience, uh, there, there's such amazing people here. People come here to learn and to do what I did and soak it all up, and I believe that. Uh, you know, it really that energy sort of uh, uh, lends itself to that kind of that kind of thing. So, yeah, I, yeah mean, I mean, you're you're just surrounded by the intensity of the city and the pace of the city and mm-hmm. the energy of the city. You know, all the time when you live here, and that I mean, to go to school in that kind of an environment, I think is um, you know when I when I bring students up for the for the the Daniel Glass Jazz Intensive that we do there at the Collective, it's it's um, to watch their experience, you know, a lot of them come from foreign countries or from other parts of the, of the, of the United States. They've never been to New York and you guys do a lot of short term programs, you know, intensives as well. So it's, it's, you know, to watch their experience, it's a really special thing. I think. It really is, man. Like I said, that place, that facility that we're in, you know, there's, there's definitely, uh, so many good vibes in those in those walls and i'm sure that uh you know the ghost of frank malabay and kim plainfield and and all the guys that came before us that uh you know their souls are in that place and uh we you know we feel the warmth almost every day it's that there's nothing like the feeling you have in that place specifically uh and it's great to have you and your group there every year we've done it for like three four years now yeah and, it's just such, you know, it's so, it's great to share. It's kind of like, you know, I've been there so long. That's my home, you know? So it's kind of yeah. like, oh, hey, we're having, we're having a party and we're bringing some new people in. Uh, <laughs> let's, right. let's, you know, let's, let's show them some love and welcome them in. And, and your group comes in and, you know, oh, after one day, everybody feels like they're, you know, they're just part of the family, you know, we just yeah. have a great time and. You know, and we do what that place was uh, built to do. We just share ideas and share information, and and people leave there with with you know not only the knowledge that you bring to them, but and the experience that they get. But there's this ingrained sort of feeling that you leave with that you could never get. I don't think anyplace else. Yeah. Well, talk talk for just a couple of minutes about. Um you know, obviously you went there as a student. What have you been doing there since, you know, uh, you you finished as a student? I know now, I mean, uh, you actually bought the place a few years ago or you're a part owner. Am I correct in that assumption? Or I know you're the yeah. director. Um, yeah. But, you um, know. Yeah, I can give a quick rundown of, yeah. of how that all happened. Uh, so, you know, going back to when I was uh, a young kid, you know, being around my dad and my grandfather, uh, entrepreneurship and I already, I always had that head because of my environment growing up. And um, so when I, uh, after I finished my 10 week program at the collective back then, they did a 10 week certificate program and a six week advanced certificate program. I took the 10 week certificate program as my entry into New York City. And as soon as that was done, 
I, I, you know, I basically, I, I broke the news to my parents. Hey, I'm not coming home. I'm staying in New York. <laughs> right. And uh, I'll, I still don't live that down to this day. My mom says, uh, you know, you left to do a 10 week program and you never came back. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, Italian mom, Italian guilt there. Yes. But, uh, yeah. So, um, you know, I, uh, I just started coming up with ideas on how to make the place better because that's just my nature. So I always, and I, and, you know, and I, at the time, you know, this is like right after my program, I'm sticking around. They can't get rid of me. I I'm coming in every day. I'm practicing in the lobby. I'm taking a room for, you know, book, paying for a room so I could practice for an hour. Cause in New York city, as you could imagine, there's no drum sets. Uh, you can't, it's not like you can set up your drum kit in your apartment and just go, go to town, especially the way I play. I'm a really loud, you know, rock player. So, um, you know, nobody's going to have that for too long. So the collective was where I practiced. So yes. I just, you know, like I said, they, they couldn't get rid of me. You I were the thing around. that wouldn't leave. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, I would, I would never, you know, and I, by the way, uh, John Castellano saw this and he said, and back then I was, a, you know, was an early morning guy, which I'm totally not now, but he said, uh, he said, you know, you're here early in the morning. You want to take the the deposit for me to the bank? And so I'm thinking, you know, I'm a 19 year old kid. I'm like, this guy's going to trust me with the, you know, with the <laughs> deposit every day. This is crazy. I'm like, yeah, sure. I said, you know, can I, he said, I'll offer you credit, you know? So for every hour you work, uh, you know, you help me out. Like you run this there and run that air and I'll give you credit and you can use it towards the lesson or practice time. So that's how it started. 1995. I'm running to the bank for John um, doing, I'm running errands here and there, doing whatever they need. And then when they're not, when I'm not doing that stuff, I'm either in the lobby or in the practice room, uh, just working on working on my drumming. And uh, and that that went on for a little while. And I, I, you know, I'm around so much, I'm thinking, no, you know, why don't they do this? I wonder if they thought about doing that, this and that, and whatever. <laughs> yeah. So I go into John's office. I go, hey, John, could I talk to you for a second? You know, have you ever thought about, like, for example, I was like, you know, everybody's, you know, in here working so hard and stuff, you know, that sometimes there's no time to leave to run and get a, uh, you know, a soda or, or a water or get a quick snack in between lessons and stuff. Do you ever think about putting vending machines in here? And he goes, no, uh, you know, but it's a good idea. I said, well, you know, if, if, if it's okay with you, um, I'd like to make that happen. He said, okay. Well, I said, you know, what about this spot right here? He goes, okay, cool. So I went and found <laughs> the entrepreneurship kicked in and I went to, uh, I, I went to the back of the village voice and, you know, all the different places you can look at, you know, classified ads. This is prior to the internet having anything on there, but, uh, a couple crappy websites that right. people were just putting up. And, um, you know, I bought a couple vending machines uh, and I just threw them in there and I stocked them every week. And um, I'll never forget, you know, the teachers would be looking at me like, what are you doing? You know, I'd be like, hey, man, you know, now now you can, uh, do you, you know, what kind of soda you like? You know, I remember Kim Flamefield was always like, make sure there's some root beer in there. Yeah. Okay. So I would just, you know, keep the stuff stocked. The collective would take a percentage. I, I'd go into John's office, you know, John Castellano, I'd walk into his office, give him a little envelope of money every month. It, it totally was working out to be that Italian sort of uh, San Gennaro 
vibe that right. I always uh, thought that the, the New York was all about. When I handing handing I envelopes of cash around. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, to a guy named Castellano. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, it is funny because so many of the people at the collective have are have Italian are Italian American, you know. Yeah. And, totally. Uh, yeah, that's that's by design. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's great. Uh, so yeah, um, long story short, I basically started just coming up with ideas, bringing them to John. John was always very open to a lot of ideas. I give him a lot of credit. You know, I'm sure I was one of many people. You know constantly bringing things up to him but he always gave me a shot he always you know noticed that i was thinking about the school and the betterment of everybody in there and so i ended up working every job that you could possibly work in that place over a good amount of years probably 12 or 13 14 years i was the pro shop guy the pro shop manager i brought all the d the the v actually it was still vhs back then i made sure we had them all in stock i realized they were impulse buys and that they were great pieces of work uh. and that if we were if dci was right downstairs and we could get every title why not have the, a little store where we can sell all those now they had a store before me but it was never really at least when i was there it was never organized in a way that you could actually go in and and make a purchase like you know like the guitar centers of the world now so yeah. i made sure we had every video in stock we carried all sorts of different sticks and you know uh, collective shirts and all sorts of books and i turned it into a real store john let me run with it and i, I remember you know making good money for the school it was a new income stream that john never expected he was very happy about that he slowly you know started promoting me into different areas and i started doing other things while I still managed the pro shop and had people working under me. And slowly I, I started doing scheduling at one point. I worked the front desk. I, I, the only thing I have never done is teach or do admissions, but everything else in that place, I sort of slowly moved into and uh, created systems around everything that we did the best that I could. And um, about 2009, um, uh, Rob Wallace came in and said that they were thinking about uh, bringing a new director in. And I, I I urged him to look inside before he looked outside because I was like, listen, I don't want to take John's job from him. And I definitely don't want to want John's job. I don't want to be the director that John is. But I do believe that there are people in this building, me included, that could really, um, you know, help this place kind of move into the new era. And if you're looking outside, I suggest that you look inside. And so he started interviewing everyone on the inside, uh, me being one of them. And uh, I think I convinced him that I should, that me and John should be co-directors because they, at the time, they were trying to sort of get, for whatever reason, they they wanted to, so they felt like, you know, John has... Uh, done a lot over the years, uh, but it's time to get some new blood in there. And so I showed them the way where it's like, hey, you can have this new blood in there, me, which has been in the place for a while, but John still has a lot of stuff to offer, and I think we should both do it. So for about a year and a half, John and I both did it. John was uh, you know, a huge integral part of this place and and my involvement and and, you know, as I uh, started doing more and more stuff. He was obviously the, the, the person that made it happen. So um, I thought that I owed that to him to sort of band with him and uh, and move forward because we both knew 
what the school needed and we because we were both around the most at that point. So um, basically, we're talking about now 2009-2010. I become director. uh, John becomes the provost and is still working full time. We're both full time. And, uh, you know, basically the rest of this history, I mean, we can go into a lot of other stuff, but I mean, the most important thing is that, uh, you know, I really felt the love for this place early on. And, and, you know, I was lucky enough to have someone like John who gave me the opportunity to sort of grow into that place and make it what it is to, you know, make, be, be a part of what it is today. And I'm really proud of that. And, uh, you know, it's a New York City institution, as you know, and it's just so great to be you know, associated with such a great place and to have such an impact over there to to turn it into, um, you know, the place that it is today, which is still which still has that really great vibe and energy. But yet, you know, we've sort of grown with the times. And Well, and now now you're offering uh, a lot of different programs and you're offering, um, uh, <clears throat> you know, you've been credentialed and um you know, it's, 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 it's much more formal. We don't necessarily want to give people the sense that, you know, they're just, that it's just it's still kind of a, f- a free form. I mean, it's, it's, oh, it's yeah, really no, focused it's, on, um, w- what it's offering yeah, I mean, students. I, I, yeah. When I was early on there, they, they started the base collective that wasn't really too involved in that, but, but in 2000, we added the guitar and keyboard collective. And in 2012, we ended up adding the vocal collective and it's since grown. We're accredited, like you said. We are certified by New York State, which allows us to offer direct student loans and compete with the big colleges out there. And really, we've turned this into, uh, you know, a, a, an amazing place to come and learn. And you're learning by certified teachers. And these are also, by the way, what sets us apart from a lot of other schools is that every every teacher that teaches there is also not only certified and very um, experienced uh, as a teacher, but they're all professionals, you know, and we deal with that with their schedules. That's the only way we can keep these top professionals teaching there is because we know we give them the leeway. Hey, I need to go on this tour. I need to go do that. I'm going to be out for two weeks because of this. You know, that's all part of the the way the collective works, we give them the time to do what they do to be, to con- continue to be a professional so that they can come back and bring back the knowledge and the experience that they just had and, and you know, and give it to the students. So it's a really an amazing way to run a school. It's very difficult scheduling wise, but it's so important to run it that well, way. Well, I think, I think it is because uh, like when I went to Dick Grove, it was the same kind of thing. Um, all the teachers there were, were, you know, very involved. They were all top professionals. Steve Houghton was there. I, uh, the, the head of the bass department was a guy named Joel DeBartolo, who had been uh, Johnny Carson's ba- bass player uh, on The Tonight Show for 18 years. So every afternoon he went off to do The Tonight Show. And um, he had been in Buddy Rich's band uh, four different times, you know, so he could tell us stories about working with Buddy. I mean, those kind of things are... Um, if you want to be a professional musician, you must study with professional musicians. You know, it, it doesn't, I think so many other schools, I think what makes the collective so unique is that everybody that you're going to learn from there is a working professional. And, you know, not to mention every, what, every couple of weeks you have another clinic or masterclass with the best of the best all around the world. You know, everybody's coming through New York all the time. So, 
Um, yeah, we're I lucky mean, in that way that, that you know, we're, we, we get the guys and girls that come in uh, for short stints or they're actually, um, you know, at their home base uh, before or after they, they're out on tour. And, you know, we're lucky enough to have, have them in our back backyard and we bring them in for clinics for sure we do that often that's a big part of what we offer another big part of uh, what sets us apart from the others is when you're a student at the collective you actually play with professionals meaning if you're uh, for example when we offer our, our certificate program is a 20-week course uh and we, we take you through 18 different styles because we know that it's very important when you're creating your own style and your own uh, voice on the instrument that you get a great foundation of many different styles because your style is obviously going to be a mixture of all those different styles. So uh, we give you a great foundation and we bring in professionals. If they're not already teaching at the school, we bring them in for a rhythm section. The way that our tracks work with these uh, different styles is you go through a history class where you learn the history of that style of music. Then you go into a listening analysis, which is part of the history lesson. Then you go into what we call groove mechanics and you learn the specific, uh, you know, uh, voicings and phrasings that go along with that, with that style. And then it all sort of comes together when you do a rhythm section in that style. So for example, if we're, uh, I remember, one of my favorite uh, courses to go through was the reggae style. And uh, I'll never forget, uh, you know, when I showed up to the rhythm section, there's all these Rastafarian dudes there. And I, I was lucky enough, you know, I got to play the, you know, reggae that I had just learned, which I think I fell on my face a few times, but still I was playing reggae and learning reggae from these guys that grew. This is like, ingrained in their souls they grew yeah, up playing this awesome. stuff so yeah. it's really amazing to be able to just be dropped into this rhythm section after spending a week or two working on a specific style and learning everything about it to now play with very authentic musicians in that style the guys that grew up playing that style and you know uh it, it's 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 a really great way to learn and uh it's a huge part of what we offer you know a lot of other schools you play with other students and, uh, you know, when you're plopped into the middle of a rhythm section where you got all these pros that have been playing this style their whole life, um, you know, you have to rise to the occasion. And uh, it really helps you grow so quickly and, 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 and better than if, if you're, you know, sort of playing with a guy that uh, or a girl that, uh, you know, that doesn't really have it down yet. You know, it's a completely different vibe, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I always, I always like to say that if in any musical situation, I want to be the weakest one there mm-hmm. because I, I'm going to have to continually scramble to get, to get my, you know, to, to reach up to the level. I want to be reaching up all the time, uh, rather than dragging absolutely, people along man. behind me. So let's, yeah, that's let's, the way to go. let's switch gears now. And, you know, talk a little bit more about your entrepreneurial side and your newest project that you have uh, up and rocking. And, you know, o- over the years, I should just say, you've had so many interesting ideas uh, that, that, you know, every time we hang out, you're like sharing whatever the newest uh, idea is. Uh, but talk a little bit about Meat Hook and, and t- t- tell uh, the, the listeners what that is, because I'm, I'm involved with it. It's an amazing idea. And um, so go for it. Yeah, man. Um, thank you. So, so meat hook is something that, uh, 
is, you know, I've been a, been a labor of love for three years now, but I mean, it's been an idea that I've had for a very long time. And uh, I, sh- I should you know, mention it that evolved. it's not about meat hanging on a hook. We should just say it's that. Not for at all. It's meat hook, <laughs> meaning M E E T. Like, let's meet. Why don't you go meet someone and hook into their skills? That's sort of where the play on words came right. from. Uh, so we put meat and hook together, and uh, you know, I figured some people are going to love it, some people are going to hate it, but everybody will remember that. Name. Indeed, and that was. Uh, that was the important thing for me. Also, I was able to get the .com, so I said, oh, man, i got to jump on this before somebody else does. Um, but the idea is that, uh, you know, it kind of came from, based on the last, you know, 24 to 30 years of my life, being lucky enough to meet all these amazing players and, you know, even going as far back as when my dad took me to see these bands growing up, like I mentioned, ha- being able to have these conversations with uh, professional musicians through my whole career has been such a huge part of the development of myself as a person, as a player, and understanding, you know, just how this all works, you know. Um, and I believe that. Uh, it's so important to sort of get other perspectives. Perspective is more important than I think anything else because you're looking through the world to the world through your eyes and someone else can be looking at that same world through their eyes. And it's so different that it's important to get as much information and knowledge that you can from the people that have walked the path before you. Um, and so with that sort of idea in mind over the last many years, I've had this idea of like, how can I find a way to bridge that gap for other people that aren't as lucky as I am, who aren't able to be in this environment that I've put myself in and worked really hard to keep myself in. Um, you know, there's gotta be a way, especially with technology, the way it is. So meat hook is, uh, is an app that you can download on the iOS, uh, you know, app store, or Google Play. We also have, you can just log in on meathook.com on your computer. And the idea is that you go on there as a user and sign up and it's free to download. It's free to sign up and you can look through many different categories of skills. So we have a music category. That's what we launched with music about 13 months ago. And the idea, and the first thing I did because I'm a drummer is I contacted every drummer I knew even if I couldn't get to this guy, I'd get to this guy and I'd say, hey, help me get a hold of that guy. And uh, Daniel, it was great to have you on early, early on. But, uh, you know, all these drummers, everybody who has a professional skill or skills in music, not just drummers, but any instrument or any sort of uh, professional environment you could be in, in music, uh, you can be a host on Hook. Now, it's also free to be a host. Um, what that means is you put up your profile so that people know who you are, what your name is, what you've done, what bands or uh, projects you've been affiliated with, companies also. And the idea is that as a user, I can go on and I can see everyone who is a host on Meat Hook and I can try to book time with them. The app allows you to book time with a professional to have a one-on-one conversation through the app, it's very similar to Skype and FaceTime once the video call portion starts, but it's all built into the app and it's a very streamlined, easy way. And the reason it works is because I have 
put the attention on the host. I do not want the host to give out their personal email or their phone number. I don't want the host to be bothered or nudged or poked in any way when they're not interested in being uh, in being available. Uh, it's, it's the idea is we sort of flipped it. You know, back in the day, you'd go to the collective or you'd call somebody up and you'd say, "Hey, when do you have time?" to talk to me or when do you have time to teach me? And it was all about them finding time. The host now has the ability to put their time in when they know they have free time. And guess what? A lot of guys, they're so busy. They don't have time. They don't know when they're going to have free time. So we've created something called Meat Hook Now that allows someone to just hop on and turn Meat Hook Now on and the reason this all works is because when you go on the app and you either try to book someone or you are just looking to see who's available, if they're not available or if they don't have availability in the future, that you can click on a little heart just like you would on Instagram where basically you're favoriting their profile. And what that does is it allows you to be notified automatically by the app the second that that person, that host uh, either adds availability to their calendar or they make themselves available right away so that you can book them for an instant, uh, an instant what we call a meat hook session, which is basically a discussion. It's a one-on-one -on -one through the app and you have a conversation. Some people offer lessons. Some people just want to tell stories. Uh, you know, people like Carmine Apice, who I'm meeting for lunch later, he's got a million stories to be able to talk to someone like that, even for 10 minutes. You have no idea the, um, you know, what the, the, the value that that brings, especially to someone who, like I said, would never have uh, otherwise have that opportunity. You know, I believe it's really uh, a great way to get perspective, to learn more about whatever, you know, burning questions you have. Uh, maybe you have a question about their equipment or how they played something or what it was like to work with somebody. Um, the bottom line is you pay them by the minute to talk one-on-one -on -one with them through the app. And it's when you, when I say talk one-on-one, -on -one, I mean, you're looking at them, they're looking at you. It's a one-on-one -on -one video call and you get their undivided attention and you can talk to them for as long as they are available. And as long as you purchase the time, um, it's kind of like Skype in that way where you, you basically uh, you book it, you pay for it, and, and uh, it, the, the, the timer, you know, if I paid for 20 minutes, the, the clock counts down, and as soon as it hits zero, it ends, and the money flows into their account. Um, it works because, you know, us musicians, we're all looking to find new ways to make money because it's so hard in this day and age. But we all have amazing experience and information and skills that we worked very hard to obtain. So this is a way that we can not only help ourselves by making some extra cash, but also helping someone else because we're guiding them or uh, we're, we're just sort of uh, letting them in behind the curtain to see what's going on and uh, giving them some advice or insight into what they're doing. So it's a win to me, it's a win-win for that's, everybody. Yeah, involved. that's really cool. And I've been excited to be a part of it. Um, I mean, the, in the last six months, I've been so busy. I haven't had time really, unfortunately, to to be involved. But the Meet Hook Now thing is a really great feature. And I did, um, I've taught some lessons using Meet Hook. Uh, and I think it's such a great idea because anybody, anywhere uh, can get involved and connect with, you know, some of the most famous 
and well-known drummers and educators on the planet uh, and have a one-on-one with them um, anywhere at any time. And I think that's, you know, it's amazing. Everybody benefits, you know, it, it helps connect people, you know, in a personal one-on-one way. And uh, for the, for the host like myself, it gives us the opportunity to maybe make a little extra money here or there um, when, when we have an opening in our schedule. Um, so I, I love it. And, uh, where can people go? I mean, I'll certainly put the link to the, to the website. Um, you know, people just, where can they check, check it out more and learn more about it? Uh, well, if you go to meathook.com, there's links to each of the app stores, depending on what kind of device you have. So you can download, download it or head to the download page right off of meathook.com. But on, on the, on the promo website you know we have a lot more information and uh if anybody wants to email me to ask me any specific questions i uh i'm happy to to give out uh info at meathook.com can they uh, can they find you through meathook.com uh yes um the uh, i'm available on the app a lot i make my price very low because I, I I just want to meet everybody who who has found their way onto the app, and I just want to talk to them. You know, we've been uh, live for 13 months, so for me, it's still I'm still fact finding. I want to hear you know how people heard of it. I want to hear how they're using it, what they're confused about. You know, it's a new thing. So over time, uh, I I believe that knowledge is power, and I just need to find out as much as I can. So I make believe it or not, my price is. I usually offer 15-minute sessions at $1 each. So $4 an hour is what I charge. And that, that, <laughs> that's a bargain. That's basically so I can just meet everyone and uh, just kind of knock a wall down between me and everyone who's using the app so that I can have a quick conversation with them. But uh, Fantastic. But, yeah, you know, if anyone has any questions or uh, is confused in any way, they can email me at info at meathook.com that's m-e-e-t-h-o-o-k otherwise go to meathook.com and learn more about it and uh, you know definitely favorite uh daniel's profile because the second he becomes available or adds availability to his calendar you will get a push notification and you will have the opportunity at that point to book him for whatever he's available for daniel you have the ability to make yourself available from anywhere from five minutes to two or three hours at a time. Wow. Um, what I suggest, because we are new, is any new host that is uh, signing themselves up and making themselves available. Um, it's important because it's such a new thing to make to bring your price down as much as you possibly can without short, you know, changing yourself, and also to set up t- set yourself up with a smaller segments of time. So, for example, if you're available tomorrow from 12 to one, I suggest making yourself available for 10 or 15 minutes at a pop. So someone doesn't have to, it almost becomes an impulse buy. They can just pay for it's a very small amount of time. 10 or 20 bucks to have a short amount of right. time. And then there's a way to add more, isn't there? To extend there the is. time. If you're, if you're having a great conversation and you want to continue two minutes before the call ends, you have the ability, as long as the host doesn't have someone booked directly after you, the, the, the little window will pop up and ask you if you want to extend time. And then Daniel, as a host, you're able to decide whether or not you're, you know, you want to accept that. Uh, but to get 10 or 15 minutes is huge and it just helps you see how cool it is. I'll tell you, I have not heard from one user or host at this point 
with hundreds of sessions already happened. And I have not heard from one person did not absolutely love it. It's very streamlined and easy. Um, even if you're not technically savvy, it's really, it's really, really simple to use. It's very intuitive. Uh, you know, to go on there and have a 10, 15 minute conversation with a like-minded person, someone who's done a little bit more than you have uh, to, to, you know, to sort of learn from them and, and get yourself to the next step. It's, it's, cool. it's really amazing. You know, great. Great, man. All right. So we just have a couple more minutes here, but I want to, before we finish, I really, um, I think people need to know a little bit about what you do as a drummer, because usually, you know, people know you as the guy at the collective running the school, the director, they know, you know, they know about Meat Hook, obviously, I mean, you've been, you've been uh, very involved with that for the last couple of years throughout the industry. Um, But I was amazed one day when you told me, uh, yeah, I played with Boston. I was like, what? <laughs> what the hell are you talking yeah, that's about? Usually, that's usually the reaction I get. Um, you know, and, and you, you've, you've done a lot of amazing gigs. Uh, I've also seen you at the Bonzo Bash playing, uh, killing it on um, Fool in the Rain, Fool in the Rain. you know, yeah. Zeppelin 2, nailing it note for note. Uh, and you've got a really great project going now as well. So, you, you know, it, d- despite all of the business stuff, you definitely have kept, kept it going as a player as well. Yeah, man. Listen, that's part of my soul. I have to keep it going. I mean, I, I get so depressed when I don't play for like, let's say I'm so busy with everything else. You know, obviously, it's very easy for that to happen. It's uh, I get bummed when I can't when I can't at least hold on to some sticks for for, you know, at least a few minutes at the very least. So, uh, yeah, I was lucky enough to audition and get the gig with Boston. This was back in the year 2000. Wow. Um and, uh, you know, they were sort of uh, getting back together and putting a new record out. Uh, I think it was the greatest hits record. And what, where that started was there were a couple guys in my hometown, Utica, New York, who, uh, who were already playing in the band. And, uh, my, of course, there, you know, my dad being in the industry, he introduced me to them. I had never met them before. And they were demoing up songs for Tom Scholz and the band to, you know, to, to basically be, uh, be in the running to be, a, you know, I guess they were going to put a few brand new songs on their greatest hits CD at the time. So everybody was writing tunes, hoping that they could get their tune on there. So these two guys, Fran and Anthony Cosmo. Yeah. Aren't uh, they, weren't they a father and son? Yeah. Father and son. Amazing. Fran was in the band for, Fran took over for Brad Delp. Wow. Uh, for whatever reason, Brad had left the band for a short, you know, time, and Fran was the only guy, from what I understand, that could ever hit those notes. Yeah. Uh, that Brad. So, so Fran ended up, uh, you know, singing for the band way before I met him. And then when I met him, he had gotten his son in the band, and his son is an amazing guitar player. So I hit it off with those guys right away. I demoed, helped them demo up some tunes for Tom to consider for the new record. We actually went into the studio to record, and Tom said, I love these two tunes, and I want you guys to come to Massachusetts and, rec- and at least start the tracking. So I got a phone call one day that was like, wow, uh, you can come to meet us in Massachusetts. Um, I think his name was Phil Green, a legendary uh, a, a, you know, recording engineer. Uh, was going to be the engineer and Tom Scholz was going to be the producer and I was going to be able to track two 
tunes for this potentially for the new CD. So I went out there and did it. You know, uh, it was the biggest thing I've ever done. I had ever done at that point, and uh, I was nervous as hell. Uh, but I went in there. I made sure I was over prepared. I, uh, I I played on these two tunes. Unfortunately, neither of them ended up on the record. Uh, but one of them did get finished, and I do have a copy of it, so I listen to it every once in a while. Wow. And but uh, but does so it have that Boston guitar sound on it? Oh, of course it does. Oh yeah. man, and, and a lot of other uh, really like you know some stuff that sounds nothing like Boston either. That was kind of like a mixture of Fran and Anthony putting their you know sort of signature on the Boston sound. So it was sort of a melding of them and Boston together. But uh, that may be the reason that it didn't ended up that it didn't end up on that record. But uh anyways, that's how it started. I got that gig through them uh to do the the you know to do the recording and then when it came time they got this big gig and they said, you know, we gotta put the band back together. For whatever reason there was nobody in the drum chair and they said, Well what about the you know the dude that played on those two songs? Call him up and see if he's interested. Of course I was. Yeah. Uh, I rehearsed with them for like three weeks leading up to it. And the funniest thing was that the gig was at the Fiesta Bowl in on New Year's Day 2001. And all we all we did was we played Boston's version of the Star Spangled Banner, which is on that Greatest Hits record. And it's like all electronic drums. And uh, honestly, the drums on that recording, um, with all due respect to Boston, that those – those drums on that recording, those electronic drums sounded so horrible. I could not believe that they wanted <laughs> me to emulate those crappy electronic program drums uh, to play this two-minute version of the Star Spangled Banner with them at the Fiesta Bowl. But, you know, who was I, who was I to say no? I mean, I, I took that opportunity. I learned it uh, backwards and forwards. Even as, you know, me- mechanical as it sounded, they wanted it exact. It was one of those gigs where it's like, hey, listen, you have no, uh, you have no, you know, you basically got to stay within these four walls and this is just what you got to play. And so I just, uh, I played what they, what they needed. Tom loved it. They ended up, you know, bringing me out to uh, Tempe, Arizona, and we did the two minute version of the Star Spangled Banner to, to, to sort of kick off the Fiesta Bowl. I never played in front of as many people in my life. It was 80,000 people in that wow. stadium. And uh, there were, according to them, there were, you know, a, at least a couple million watching at home on TV. It was live TV. Uh, and it was amazing. It was an amazing experience. And that, to this day, has been my uh, my ticket to so many other gigs. Because as soon as somebody finds out that I play drums in Boston for even that short amount of time, you know, they get all excited. Um, but uh, moving into, you know, I played with a lot of other bands in New York City over the years and, uh, you know, done a lot of great stuff. I, I toured for about a year and a half with my band, The Smash Up. I was one of the founding members of that band, uh, or at least uh, someone who came in very early on. We were lucky enough to get uh, signed by a, a label called Warcon Records. We played uh, the, the big tour, the first big tour that we had was uh, the Taste of Chaos tour of 2006, which was kind of like the the spring version of the Warped tour. And they were oh, doing it in yeah. in auditoriums around the country. And, and we were so lucky to get that tour because Warcon was basically Warped and Concrete Marketing oh. uh, combined. 
And uh, so the Warp Tour people, Kevin Lyman and them, uh, you know, they they said, you know, you guys got to get on this tour. You're perfect fit. And we ended up being able to open up for the Deftones every night, which was like a dream come true because I've been a huge fan of the Deftones. For many years. That's funny. So, I don't know if you know this, but that, uh, our uh, band Royal Crown Review that, did the Warp Tour. Uh, no, I was just going to say our band Royal Crown Review. We did the Warp Tour for two years, uh, all of '97 and '99. In fact, I did a two-part podcast about the, that experience uh, uh, of being on the Warp Tour, and we were the one of only two European, well, the only European Warp Tour, and we also went to Australia, Japan, New Zealand, and Hawaii with it which they only did a couple of times. Oh, wow. So it was a, That's yeah, it was, a, it was a pretty cool. And there were all kinds of really amazing bands on, including the Deftones for a while. But, um, but talk a little bit about what you're doing now. This new project you have is really, really amazing. Like, you know, the music you guys are putting out yeah. is fantastic. Well, you know, um, it, it's, it's amazing. Um, these guys that I've played with on and off for many, many years, we're talking since 99, I've been playing on and off with these guys. Uh, and what, what we've done for the last eight years with, during all my busy times and, you know, one guy had two kids and he's got a family, he's got a big, uh, you know, a busy schedule. Another guy who lives, you know, uh, who takes care of his parents and does a lot of stuff and that, uh, you know, everybody's so busy. We would just get together uh, on and off whenever, no pressure, but it's like, hey, you know, it's been a while. Why don't we get together? We did that for about nine years and we recorded every jam session, quote unquote, jam session. And uh, what happened was over time, we came up with a lot of really cool ideas, just jamming out, you know, just kind of like, hey, you know, uh, I would come up with a groove and they would just start, you know, jamming on top of it or vice versa. And about a year ago, maybe uh, maybe about a year and a half ago, I said, hey, guys, listen, you know I love you, and I love uh, playing with you guys and getting together and blowing off steam, and, and you know it, it, it allows me the opportunity to put all the business crap down and just play some drums and music and vibe with you guys. But, you know, I'm a very goal-oriented person, and we've been doing this for so long. Why don't we turn it into something? You know, right. we're just sitting on all these great ideas. We have – nine years worth of uh, recordings of just all these jam rehearsal, uh, you know, basically jam rehearsal recordings. They said, why don't we turn them into something? So we came up with this formula that has been such an amazing thing. We, we, uh, we put all these recordings on uh, a Google drive and we all just went home and just delved into it and listened to it and came up with our top. Everybody comes up with their top three ideas uh, th- that are basically that came out of our souls that we just played while we were in a room together without any preconceived idea. And um, so what ends up happening is we have these ideas. We go into the room and we do pre-production. So basically we decide, we, you know, I'll come in and I'll say, hey, I've been listening to uh, we call them Epic Jams. So it's like, hey, I've been listening to Epic Jams 35. And I really like, at like, you know, minute three, uh, you know, Rob, the guitar player, starts doing this really cool thing. And then at minute seven, that vocal thing is perfect. So we all basically come in with our ideas on where we think one of these jams that we uh, did together could go. And we just write a song right there. And it's all based on the inspiration that we got from ourselves, uh, you know, playing this stuff years ago, you know, out of thin air. So what we have decided to do and what's been working amazing is, you know, we're lucky enough we have a room. 
all always set up with our gear. We have the mic set up, everything. It's all hooked into a big board and a, a computer. And we just decided, you know, we don't need anybody's help with this. We can do this on our own. And, you know, for many years, we never had that ability. So we're like, hey, why aren't we using this stuff? So um, we decided we're going to just take our ideas, formulate them into tunes that we like. We're going to do our own pre-production. We're going to do our own uh, recording session. And we're going to just uh, – we're going to push out one tune a month. So every, the first Friday of every month for 11 months now, we have released new original music. And sometime in between, in the middle of the month, we'll throw a – we'll just put a, a, a GoPro in the corner and we'll just we'll, – we'll jam out some – one of our cool. favorite covers. And, uh, you know, it helps people gravitate towards our originals because they see us playing – you know, some Beastie, uh, Beastie Boys song or some uh, 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 Rage Against the Machine tune. Uh, we all have different, uh, you know, bands that we love. So we what, get together the, and we do some I don't some think covers. you've told us the name of the project. Oh, it's called Embers Only. Embers and, Only. And, uh, yeah, it's former members of a band I was in uh, back in the day called Engine Orange. Uh, we played for a while and, you know, one of those stories where you get signed and you get a $2 million deal and then six months later they drop you down to a $10,000 development deal and then they right. throw you out the window. Um, <laughs> we were we were one of those millions of bands that that happened to. And we were like basically Linkin Park before Linkin Park. Everybody, uh, when, when Linkin Park came out and sort of, uh, you know, blew the roof off, uh, with you know their new sound with this like hip hop uh, metal sort of vibe, uh, everybody was like, "Oh my god, they sound so much like you guys!" And we were like, "Damn it, <laughs> you know, like right. they got it and we didn't. What are you gonna do?" Uh, we were bummed for a while, but you know, these guys have remained my very close friends, and it's turned into an amazing project. We get together. None of us have any pressure. Put any pressure on each other. We're lucky enough to um, have this studio. It's one room in in the, in Brooklyn. There's a rehearsal studio called, you know, it's an hourly rehearsal studio. It's called the Sweatshop, and uh -huh. it's on Meserol Street. And uh, the guy, I was part owner in the Sweatshop very early on, but you know, I soon went on tour with the Smash Up, and um, so I had to sort of remove myself from that business. And my buddies kept it going. And now at this point, they've, they have it built up to like 21, 22 studios, uh, all hourly, great equipment. And, you know, people go in there and just pay by the hour and do their rehearsal. And we're lucky enough to have a studio in that building that is just sort of part of their rent. And they, they, they just have it just for us. It's locked so it's, up when, it's, when yeah, we're not there. Nice. And nice. Yeah, so you have the ability to record on a fairly regular basis. Yeah. And you I mean, just it's so like plug amazing. and play kind of. Yeah, exactly. It's so amazing to go in, turn the lights on, hit three buttons and like, OK, let's let's take a take, you know, and let's yeah. just uh, let's get this recorded and get it done. And like I said, it's amazing to not need anybody uh, to approve of anything or uh, basically we just record it and we upload it to this uh, this service called DistroKid which allows hmm. you to sort of release it on many different platforms all at once. Oh, wow. Uh, it goes up on our YouTube channel. It goes up on Spotify and Amazon and Apple and all those other different uh, platforms that people consume music on. And we put it out uh, the first Friday of every month is sort of our deadline. And uh, 
whenever we put out a new original tune, we have some original artwork that my buddy Z, the singer and sort of the engineer and uh, producer, uh, the guy who was doing everything behind the scenes, as well as doing the lyrics and the vocals, uh, you know, he's an amazing graphic designer. He actually designed the Meat Hook logo for me, which I oh, think great. is one of the sexiest logos out there. <laughs> um, you know, and so we put some artwork out with some original music, and we always try to have some sort of video aspect. Sometimes it's us playing Sometimes it's like a lyric video. Sometimes it's just like our logo with some crazy uh, graphics around it or whatever. But uh, I'm really excited. People are really digging it. I uh, There's tunes that we've sort of uh, birthed out of this project that I can't stop listening to. I just love them. Um, it's not because I'm playing on them. It's just because I think they're such great tunes. And, you know, at the very least, we're not looking for anything. That's the best part. We don't go in there with any sort of idea of like, you know, back in the day, it'd always be like, oh, well, are the fans going to like this? Or is the record company going to like this? Or whatever. It's like, you know what? This is us and we're putting it out. And I don't care if anybody likes it. We like it. And we, you know, we put it out and it's, you know, and the good thing is that, you know, people are starting to like it. And the people that find out about it, they, that you know, they're, so we got some diehard fans already on Instagram. So it's pretty awesome. And like I said, you know, it's it's coming from our heart and soul. It's almost like we're learning what we played when we were jamming out uh, back whenever we recorded that. And we turned it into a tune. So it comes from the most natural place. Um, and I love it, man. It just keeps me active playing. It's n There's nothing better than playing music with people that you love, that you like you feel like you're there. They're, you're, you and they are brothers. And it's all about just playing good music and, and keeping good company and uh, whatever comes of it comes of it. None of us are looking to become rich or rock stars out of it. Uh, but uh, it's really quality stuff. And I'm, I'm really uh, excited that we're able to sort of do this all on our own and, and not need anybody's uh, sort of stamp of approval. You know, yeah. we can just throw them out whenever. All right. Well, so, I will, I will definitely put information uh, in the show notes to link to that. Um, to your guys' YouTube channel. To say the name again one more time, Embers. It's Embers only. It's like Members only. The Members right. only jacket, just take the M off. It's Embers only. Embers only. That's funny. It's great stuff. I remember checking it out and just being totally uh, blown away by the music. Really heavy, like awesome. you said, Rage Against the Machine and all that kind of stuff. But it's 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 really well done. So I wanted to definitely make sure we talked about that. All Thank right, you, Mr. Uh, awesome Mr. Anthony Citrinitti, otherwise known as Anthony. Uh, in a very New, New York way. It's been great having you on the program, my friend, and I'm glad that, you know, we had the opportunity to, to kind of have you share about your New York life. It's uh, it's very unique here, and uh, there's just so much going on. So thanks so much for joining us on the Daniel Glass Show. Daniel, so great talking with you, man. Anytime you want to talk, I'll tell you some stories about uh, when I met Max Roach and Elvin Jones. We never got to that. <laughs> I but, know, uh, we never got to I, that. That's That's for part two. Uh, but right. so, you know, thank you so much for, for taking the time to talk to me and helping me spread the good word about the collective and meat hook and my band numbers only. And it's just always great talking with you. You're such a great energy. And, and I, I think you're one of the best teachers out there when it comes to drums and the history. Um, I, I just love how articulate you are about, uh, 
you know, uh, spreading that message. And uh, I'm always blown away when I'm uh, at one of your master classes. You have so many amazing skills on the drums and you and the way that you explain it is just so it's just makes it so easy to learn. And, you know, I appreciate you and everything that you've done and the support you've uh, shown me over the years. And, you know, man, let's just keep this thing moving and uh, and keep inspiring people. And, you know, thank you for everything you've done. Oh, thank you, brother. Much, much, much appreciated. And uh, and I, I know that you know we will we will keep this ball rolling. We're we're uh, we got to keep the we got to keep New York, New York, and keep it real here, and and continue to make this a a place of great music and great music education for people around the world for sure. Couldn't have said it better myself, man. Thank you. All right, all right, brother. Thanks. All right. Have a great day. Okay. <laughs>